A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In today's episode, we continue our rewatch of The Leftovers with episode three of the final season, Crazy White Fella Thinking. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I'm here to stop the apocalypse by recording a new episode of Big Squid. Thank you for joining me today as we make our way towards the grand finale of The Leftovers. Only a few episodes to go. What a sad moment that will be for me, specifically. And for you, I'm guessing. But it's great. It's a great ending. We're heading towards something really good. Like one of the best endings ever. Like one of my favourite endings ever. Ah, don't talk it up. Ah, too late. Anyway, I'm looking forward to... Not only discussing that episode, but uh, all the episodes along the way, and this one is something else. If you listen to Tuesday's episode with Garth Jones talking about Mad Max Fury Road, I had my second Pfizer shot this week, and I have been feeling really tired, and at times mildly nauseous. Nothing too major, it's just one of those things where you feel a bit, oh, just a bit off, and uh, and then it's outside, get a bit of fresh air, and then I'm back on track. And I keep falling asleep, which isn't the worst thing in the world to experience. It's kind of nice to <laughs> suddenly have one of those moments where you're like, oh, I've just been asleep. It's an it's mildly annoying when you've got work to do, uh, but I'm also trying to listen to my body, and if it needs to rest while the vaccine kicks in, then I'll do what I can to nod off. 
And uh, as I said, it's quite a nice feeling. So I'm kind of only telling you this in case you're only one vaccine in or you still haven't had an opportunity to have a vaccine. Just giving you a little bit of an insight into my experience. My first Pfizer shot, sore arm. And that was about it, really. And then uh, this one's just knocked me around a little bit, but nothing nothing too major. I know some people have had uh, a much worse experience. But, um, you know, if I could get rid of this kind of mild, mild headache. It's not even a headache. It's just a little uh, in the back of the head. That would be quite nice. But anyway... I won't do much chatting here. There's a lot to dig into with this episode. You know what? Every episode of The Leftovers in Season 3, it feels like a double episode. There's so much going on. And the exciting aspect of this episode is we're in Australia. And if this is your first time watching the series, I think you'll be wrapped with how our country is depicted. It looks beautiful. And they've really caught the rhythm of the Australian voices, especially the dry sense of humour that thrives in our outback. Let's get into this Kevin Garvey Senior episode, rightfully entitled Crazy White Fella Thinking. I used to hear voices and the voices said, what are you looking for? So I said, purpose. I believe a great flood will come and I have to stop it. You're scared. I am trying to save people. Save them from what? What are you doing? Preventing the apocalypse. What are you doing? We open on Kevin Garvey Sr. as he experiences the day of the departed. We focus on him from behind as the chaos blooms around him. Kevin is still, his body taut, incapable of action. From behind, he hears a voice say, Go and help them. It is now Kevin's present as he drives down the roads that crisscross the Australian outback. He listens to an old-fashioned tape recorder that plays a cassette of his son watching ducks diving. They've disappeared for so long under the water that Kevin Jr. begins to panic, but his father reassures him that this is the way of things. When the ducks resurface, Kevin Jr. is elated and finishes the tape by saying, This is Kevin Garvey Jr. reporting. His father in the present looks content. We watch as Kevin climbs a mountain and spies an Aboriginal tribe conducting one of their ceremonies. He watches from afar, hiding amongst the rocks, and begins to secretly record the ceremony. As the Aborigines continue their business, unaware that they're being recorded, Kevin leans back and smiles to himself. That night, Kevin ignores a sign that states this is sacred land and off-limits to people who aren't supposed to be there. He walks with purpose into the field where the Aborigines had danced and arranges a ring of burning fires around him. Kevin then covers himself in paint, ochre, and listens to the recording he taped earlier. He then begins to dance the ceremony that is not his right to carry out. Kevin is so preoccupied in the moment that he fails to see a police jeep pull up. The two Aboriginal cops approach him, slightly confused, bemused. What are you doing? One of the cops asks. Preventing the apocalypse. What are you doing? replies Kevin. The next morning, Kevin has his mugshot taken, and once that is done, they take a look at his map. They trace the path he is making southward and tell him this is the songline. Is it? says Kevin. The cops share a look. They don't know what to make of this American. They decide to let him go, but he has to leave his stuff behind. 
Kevin is happy to leave it behind, but begs for the tape player. They let Kevin take the recorder, but he realises there isn't a cassette inside. The cops don't want to hand it over because it contains songs and ceremonies he stole from Aboriginal tribes. Kevin doesn't want that cassette for that reason. He wants it because the tape contains a trip he took with his son to Niagara Falls in 1981. Kevin begs for it, declares it is important to him, and so the cops shrug and hand over the cassette. Kevin thanks them profusely before continuing his journey. In the privacy of his car, Kevin looks at the map and crosses off another point. He then continues his drive and listens to a young Kevin again. This time his son is confused by the idea that a fictional character like Travis Bickle could somehow inspire a real person like John Hinckley to carry the actions in Taxi Driver into the real world to try to kill the president. Kevin Jr. wants to know why this happened. His father points out because the man is crazy, but the important part is that the president is fine. Relieved, Kevin Jr. signs off on another live report. Kevin arrives at a remote post office and tells the postal officer that he's looking for a man named Christopher Sunday in one of the Aboriginal communities. It is suggested that Kevin head out to see Sharon, who is the liaison for the local Indigenous culture. Kevin is annoyed, but the postal worker won't budge. Kevin also lets him know that he had mail forwarded to him here. The postal worker finds it, but isn't keen to hand it over, especially since Kevin doesn't have any identification with him. Kevin states that he can prove it by confirming without looking that the package came from Matt Jamison, who lives in the town of Miracle in the USA. Once he gets his hand on the package, Kevin asks the man if he knows what the best-selling book of all time is. The Bible, the guy guesses. Yes, it is, says Kevin. And this is the sequel. Kevin sits alone out the front of a cafe and opens up the package. He finds a manuscript and money inside. He rips out a page of the manuscript and uses that to wrap up some of the money. He then places it inside his copy of the National Enquirer. It's the one we originally saw in the first season and then begins to read the manuscript with a red pen in his hand. The further he reads, the angrier he gets, crossing out paragraph after paragraph, writing expletives across the page. Eventually, he looks to the sky and yells, Motherfucker! At a phone box in the middle of nowhere, Kevin makes a call back to the States. Mary answers the phone and Kevin pretends to be someone else. Mary sighs. She knows it is Kevin, and after calling him out, she hands the phone over to Matt Jamison in a slightly aggressive manner. Kevin barely registers this with Matt because he's too furious about the manuscript. The problem is that Kevin Sr. isn't in the book. He's not mentioned. There's not one word about what he is trying to achieve down under. Kevin Sr. can't understand why the book is all about Kevin Jr. I'm not a part of his story. He's a part of mine, Kevin yells. All his son did was guide him to Australia. Matt doesn't understand. When did Kevin guide his father to Australia? Kevin Sr. says it was when he was eight years old. Matt patiently points out that there aren't any children written in the scriptures, but Kevin asks about Abraham and his son. Matt says that Abraham's son was 36 years old. This makes no sense to Kevin. Matt tries to bring some peace to the conversation to redirect it by asking if Kevin received the money he placed in the manuscript. Yes, says Kevin grumpily. He wants to know what it is for. Matt doesn't understand the question. It is to help Kevin out. Really, says Kevin. It's not to keep my mouth shut so I won't tell him about the book you're writing. 
Matt becomes defensive. He doesn't want Kevin to know about the book yet because he believes it wouldn't do him any good. But Kevin Sr. doesn't care. He tells Matt that he better find some scuba gear because if he fails in his mission, they're all going to end up underwater. He finishes by telling Matt to go fuck himself. While Kevin stands in the phone box, impotent, full of fury, a sudden storm appears out of nowhere. The rage subsides to be replaced by apprehension. His purpose reignited. Kevin drives to the Indigenous Centre, and before he enters, he throws the manuscript in the bin. Is Sharon around? Kevin asks. He's told she's in the crapper. (laughs) While Kevin looks around, the man who works at the Centre feels like he recognises this strange American. As Kevin waits, he sees a wanted poster with his face smack bang in the middle, but before he can get close enough to read it properly, Sharon comes out to greet him. Kevin immediately introduces himself as Frank and tries to ingratiate himself by asking about the painting. He says it is a Papanya painting of the snake, a painting he would recognise anywhere. Sharon proudly points out that she, in fact, painted this, a fact that Kevin appears to genuinely enjoy. He then gets down to business telling Sharon that he's looking for Christopher Sunday. Sharon is reticent, but Kevin reassures her that he doesn't want anything from him other than his wisdom, his enlightenment. This is a promising answer for Sharon as she begins to look for Christopher's address. In fact, she'll accompany him to Christopher's house. While she looks up the address, they discuss her grandson, who at this young age wants to grow up to be an astronaut. Kevin shares that his son once wanted to be an anchorman, but instead grew up to be a cop, and a very good one at that. Sharon is enjoying the conversation until she looks up and sees the wanted page, recognising this so-called Frank as the man they're being warned about. Kevin quickly attempts to explain, but Sharon is mortified as she reads out his transgressions. Kevin is wanted for appropriation of sacred ceremonies without permission, the theft of creation songs, and a misrepresentation of identity. It is stated on the poster that under no circumstances should Kevin be given access to tribal elders. Shame on you, says Sharon. You've stolen from these people. Kevin points out that Australia stole this land, that Australians stole children from these people, but Sharon is mortified as she counters that the government had formally apologised for that awful moment in history. Kevin explains that he's lived amongst the Aboriginal people and he, in fact, wants to save them. While Sharon looks at him dumbfounded, he steals the address from her hands, runs to his car and takes off. He drives further into the heart of Australia and finally arrives at an Aboriginal town. The locals eye him suspiciously, but he nods in their direction, just as they can see him. Kevin, in turn, sees them. He approaches the house, gathers himself and knocks. An elderly Aboriginal man opens the door and Kevin speaks in the man's native tongue. The man looks at Kevin blankly, so he apologises and asks in English if he is, in fact, Christopher Sunday. The man replies, Chris! It is a real honour to meet you, says Kevin. He gathers himself and says, I am Kevin, totem of the bush snake. I've come a long way to find you. You scared, says Chris. I am. Yes. Of what? Kevin flashes back to that fateful day of the departed and tells Christopher that he began to hear voices five minutes after the people disappeared. These voices led him to being placed in an institution where he argued with people that nobody else could see. Kevin says he then came to a point where he stopped arguing with the voices and instead decided to do what the voices said. Those same voices told Kevin he had to travel to Australia. So Kevin flew to Sydney and on his first night a hippie with a red headband walked up to him and asked if he wanted to talk to God. So Kevin said yes, I do. 
He was told he had to talk in God's tongue, but God's tongue turned out to be an hallucinogen. Kevin woke two weeks later in Perth with a smouldering mattress next to him, surrounded by white people covered in paint. Kevin had no memory and also was frustrated that God did in fact fail to talk to him. He realised it was a waste of time or at the very least a misguided detour. While he's sitting in the hotel room, he notices the TV is on and sees on the screen a chicken. In this story, it is reported that on October the 15th, which is of course October the 14th of the sudden departure, but we are in Australia, so it's the next day, a town in the outback lost its entire population. It was only a small town inhabited by 14 people, but they all vanished. Even the animals did too. Every living thing was gone except for one an egg. Two days later, it hatched and the chicken was named Tony. At first, nobody took the chicken seriously, but soon rumours began to spread that the chicken could help people find what they're missing, what they're looking for. Kevin is elated. He sees it as a sign that the first thing he hears after waking up from a two-week acid trip is this news report, this story. So Kevin hops on the train and makes the 4,000-kilometre journey to the town and meets the chicken, Tony. Kevin is asked, What are you looking for? Kevin doesn't know. He needs Tony to tell him. It is pointed out that Tony doesn't work that way. You have to ask the chicken. So Kevin, in frustration, reveals that he's looking for purpose. Immediately, Tony jumps onto Kevin's backpack and begins pecking the cassette he has in there. The recording is from when Kevin Jr. was eight years old, and he'd recorded it on the tape recorder his mother had given him for Christmas. She died a month later and Kevin Jr. held it close to him. He kept his mother's final gift alongside him all the time. Later that year, Kevin Sr. took his son on a trip to Niagara Falls. This drove Kevin Sr. nuts having his son record everything that they said. But as he admits this to Chris, he begins to cry before revealing that he likes to listen to it. This is the tape that Tony pecked. Kevin didn't rewind it, he just placed it in the recorder and listened for one last voice to tell him what to do. On the cassette, a sudden rain has caused Kevin Sr. to pull over the side of the road. His son is scared and asks his father to sing the song that will make the rain stop. Kevin Sr. is reluctant at first, but eventually begins to sing the nursery rhyme Itsy Bitsy Spider, and just like that, the rain stopped. Kevin tells Chris that on the seventh year anniversary of the sudden departure, the rains will come and with them a great flood. He needs to sing to make it stop. You have to sing, says Chris. Kevin explains for the last two years he's been working his way down the song line, how every community has a different part that is theirs and theirs alone. Kevin has had to learn it piece by piece, every sacred site, every ceremony, every word. Chris thinks he understands and asks if Kevin wants to know his song. Kevin does. It is the last song and Kevin has been told that Chris is the only man alive who knows it. My song, Bring the Rain, says Chris, not stopping it. Well, says Kevin, that's all subject to interpretation. You want to stop the flood, says Chris? Start there. He points to an air conditioner that drips water down the wall. Kevin agrees and is soon on the roof doing what he can to fix it. While he talks down to Chris on the ground, he sees Sharon suddenly arrive in her car. Kevin is furious and immediately tells Chris not to believe a word she says, and more importantly, remember, they have a deal. But in Kevin's desire to cover his bases, he falls over and rolls off the roof. 
We cut to an ambulance speeding down a dirt track through the outback. Chris is hooked up to a machine to keep him alive. Kevin has a broken leg, but he's hysterical, telling the medical officer that he tried to roll out the way. He yells that he can't be separated from Chris when they get to the hospital, but the medical officer is dismissive. He is busy trying to keep Chris alive. Kevin yells at the doctor, telling him that he's part of a tribe and as an elder, he should be treated with respect. He tries to talk to Chris, but the medical officer, who is also an Aboriginal man, looks at Kevin in shock and subsequently kicks him onto the road, throws him some crutches, and then the ambulance drives off. Kevin begins to walk with his crutches, supporting his weight while listening to the cassette. In the audio, we hear a young Kevin telling his father that he thinks they're going the wrong way. Kevin Sr. says to his son that the map is set up for you to go the places they want you to go, but if you want an adventure, you have to ignore the map. As he hears this advice, it inspires Kevin Sr. to ignore the road and head out across the land. After a while, he sees a car pull up in the distance, so Kevin makes his way over to it. He watches as a guy dressed in a suit gets out of the car and subsequently pours gasoline all over it and himself. Kevin hobbles over, yelling, wanting to know what he is doing. The man looks at Kevin and says that they didn't take me. Kevin tries to reason with the man, tries to talk him down by pointing out that they didn't take most people and that was seven years ago. The man asks, would you kill a baby if it would cure cancer? No, this is exactly what I said. And with that, the man sets himself on fire. Soon the car catches on fire when the petrol tank also goes up. It explodes in a ball of flame. Later that night, Kevin opens up the charred boot of the car looking for some water, but only finds alcohol. Kevin ignores the burnt body near him and yells to the sky, You can't stop me, arsehole. Then the sky responds with thunder and rain. At first, Kevin gleefully catches it in his hand so he can drink, but then he realises his tape recorder is out in the open and is about to be soaked. The next morning, Kevin sits winding the now-dried tape back inside the cassette and places it in the recorder. Kevin begs it to work, but it doesn't. The audio is stretched and ruined. Kevin begins to cry. His purpose is over. He ignores the burnt corpse of the man and leaves, struggling through the desert on his crutches. Eventually, he comes across the snake and eyes it carefully. Kevin speaks to the snake. I know you're my totem, but I've got some bad news for you. If I go down, I don't think I'm getting up. I need to eat you. I'm sorry. Know that you gave your life for something greater than yourself. Kevin beats the snake to death with his crutch, but as he prepares to take the body and prepare it to be eaten, it leaps up and bites him many times on the arm, again and again. Kevin snaps, and in fear and rage, he slams the snake over and over against a rock until it is finally dead. Immediately, Kevin gets to work and tears his shirt so he can tie a tourniquet around his arm. Now Kevin continues through the desert, one arm useless, one leg lame. Looking up ahead, he sees a cross, and he makes his way towards it. There's wind chimes attached to the cross that jingle jangle gently in the breeze. Kevin places his head to the cross as if in a silent prayer and sits down against it. He's covered in sweat, dirt, he pulls out his red pen and the ripped pages of the book of Kevin. He begins to write. There below the cross, his crutches alongside him. In the distance, he sees a person on a horse ride towards him, but Kevin is slowly losing consciousness. Help, he gasps before passing out. Kevin wakes. A globe of the world hovers over him. Australia staring down. 
On the floor, a dog sits looking up at him. Kevin is attached to an IV and a catheter that he promptly removes with great pain. He wanders around the strange house he finds himself in, but there's no one around. Kevin sees a phone and makes a call to Matt Jamison. In Jarden, it is the middle of the night. Matt points out the time, but Kevin doesn't care because what he needs to know is what day it is. Kevin is disorientated. He has lost track of all time. He doesn't know what day it is. He asks Matt how long it has been since they last talked. It was three weeks ago, says Matt. Kevin begins to panic. That means there's only eight days until the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure. Matt tries to change the subject because he needs Kevin to make a photocopy of the book and send it to him. This conversation takes place after Kevin Jr. has gotten his hands on the copy that Matt had. Kevin Sr. dismisses Matt's request, telling him that he threw it away. What he needs is for Matt to call the hospital to find out if Christopher Sunday survived. But Matt is in shock. He can't get over that Kevin threw away the book. Kevin tells Matt to get over it, but Matt replies that Kevin can go fuck himself. After Matt hangs up, Kevin makes his way outside and sees people building a boat from timber that was once made up of a little church. Kevin smiles. He understands why they're doing that. It is for the flood. He asks if the Aboriginal people working on the boat can take him to the hospital to see about Christopher Sunday. Unfortunately, one of the people there knows about Kevin, knows that this is the guy that rolled off the roof and landed on him. It is pointed out that Christopher didn't make it. He's dead. Kevin is devastated, but not for the death he caused, but what this means for his mission. Kevin goes back inside and rummages through the house for some drugs and finds the dog's arthritis pills. He gobbles down a lot of them. He keeps looking through the house for food and finds a package in the freezer which contains, amongst other things, a passport and a photo album. He eats some processed cheese and looks through the photos. A woman with red hair and a baby, some adoption papers, a photo with her husband and then more photos of more children alongside more adoption certificates. There's a picture of a new boy, Aboriginal, a page for the Bible, Isaiah, kids playing on a seesaw near a pool, the family in front of the small church, the one that is being remade into a boat. And eventually, while Kevin looks through this person's life, the drugs kick in and he passes out. When he wakes, it is dark and he hears a noise outside. He makes his way towards the noise and sees four women next to the seesaw, a figure strapped to the end that has been dunked into the little pool. Kevin calls, What are you ladies up to? One immediately turns around and shoots him with a tranquilizer dart. Kevin immediately passes out. He wakes and sitting opposite him is the woman with the red hair and the photos. She says hello and gets Kevin some tea. She points out that Kevin had been looking through her photos, but Kevin says in his defence he was hungry and he found them by accident in the freezer. The woman introduces herself as Grace. Before Kevin can introduce himself, she says, I just killed a man. Grace explains that she will turn herself in tomorrow and she's hoping that Kevin won't tell anyone about the other ladies involved. Grace explains that she lives here all alone. Her family is gone. They disappeared on the 15th, the day of the sudden departure. Faith explains that she was in town at the Big W when the girl who worked there just disappeared right in front of her, holding the packet of wheat picks she was just about to buy. She took them with her too. Grace says she knew what it was the moment that it happened, the rapture. Grace made it home the next night, but she knew the chapel would be empty before she stepped inside. All the Bibles were there, but her whole family were gone, including her husband. She felt blessed because God gave her a sign that her family were alongside him. For two years she endured, she held true. Then one day she received a phone call that told her that the remains of her five children were found on her property, their bones bleached in the sun. 
Grace explains that when the departure happened, the phones were down and the children had no way of contacting her, no way of finding out if she was coming home or if she had vanished, just like her husband. So the children set out across the flats to look for help, and they had died. Grace hadn't even considered searching for them because if she had, she might have found them. They might be alive today. Grace wouldn't be alone. So she took the cross from the chapel and placed it where the children died, the place where she found Kevin near death. In his hands was a page from the book of Kevin, a page written like scripture, one Grace had never seen or heard of before. On this page, it talked about a police chief called Kevin who passed into the next world and spoke to the dead and could alleviate the pain. It turned out, just 20 kilometres from where Grace lives, there's a police chief called Kevin, and what are the chances of that? It had to be him. She approached the Australian Kevin to ask for his help, and when he refused, she drugged him and drowned him. The way Grace saw it, this police chief was testing her, and that once she proved her faith, he would talk to her children just one last time. Grace thought Kevin was sent by God with a message just for her, but she realises now that Kevin isn't an angel, there is no message, and God doesn't care about her. It's just a story I told myself, says Grace. It's just a stupid, silly story, and I believed it because I've gone a bit crazy, haven't I? Kevin watches her speak, his eyes never waver, and when she finishes her story and asks if she's gone a bit crazy, Kevin replies, No, Grace, I don't think you're crazy at all. You just got the wrong Kevin. So this is one of my all-time favourite episodes of any TV show that features a character I genuinely dislike. Don't get me wrong, I think the writing for Kevin Garvey Sr. and the performance of Scott Glenn is pitch perfect, but he is the type of man I have never gravitated towards in the real world. Even when I was young, I found this version of a man quite terrifying. The air of violence that always hangs over him, even when he's in a good mood. I just find it to be incredibly off-putting. I think he's been a terrible father and the type of guy who is a great friend as long as you're a friend on his terms. In the past, we've only seen him in smaller moments. He's never had an episode to himself like this. And I came out of this episode disliking him even more. And I also 100% love this episode so much. It's one of my favourite episodes of the whole 28 run Uh, Kevin is so sure of himself, so certain that he knows right, that he constantly misreads situations or events. He needs everything he comes across to be in service to his own beliefs as a way of finding control in a world beyond controlling. It is telling that this man who has it all figured out on the day of the departure can do nothing but stand still as chaos reigns around him. This is the day he begins to hear the voices, only a few minutes after the most catastrophic moment in human history. Kevin is quite clearly mad, and like most mad people, is the last one to know this. His inability to see his appropriation of the Aboriginal culture as a crime says a lot about the man. He lacked sensitivity before that fateful day. How do we know this? He admits that when Kevin Jr. carried that tape recorder around recording everything, it drove him crazy. His son quite clearly was in pain over losing his mother, but at the time, Kevin Sr. just sees it all as a bit of an annoyance. We see the way he speaks to Kevin at his party in season one. A lack of empathy is apparent even then. All that macho shit wrapped up in tough love. I'd say most of Kevin Jr.'s problems come from the fact that he probably was never meant to be a tough guy. He was always sensitive. Maybe the police force wasn't quite the right role for him. Following in his father's footsteps was possibly a mistake. It makes you wonder if Tommy is taking the wrong path too, an even more sensitive young man following his adopted father into a profession he might not be suited for. 
He can't see what he is doing is deeply insensitive because he believes he is right. He believes he has a divine purpose that the whole world needs him to carry out. But the giveaway is that he believes the world revolves around him and nobody else can do what has to be done. This is why he's furious when he reads Matt's book because it is about his son, a man he loves but also thinks is soft, unfocused, unable to live up to the standards he set. How could a book be about the son and not the father? The way he treats Matt is awful. Matt is a believer, a man who is true to his cause. Look, Matt drives me insane as well, but he's generous. He sends money to a man who might be in another part of the world having a nervous breakdown. This is all around the time that Mary is pushing back against him. And then after she has left, it is no wonder Matt finally breaks and tells Kevin to go fuck himself. Kevin Sr. is smart and quick to judge everyone else. He'll gladly bring up the stolen generation to hold against the woman, which is rich coming from a man that belongs to a culture that did its best to wipe out their indigenous people as well. Two wrongs definitely do not make a right, but this is a typical example of how Kevin protects himself by attacking those around him. It is this dogmatic approach to life that also blinkers him to what is going on, to what he is actually experiencing. He listens to his son be confused between the world of Taxi Driver, a work of fiction, having an effect on a real man trying to shoot the president. He thinks the story is cute, that it all ends okay because the president doesn't die. But he fails to hear the story and wonder about his own actions. He has been taking inspiration from a random issue of National Geographic. He listens to voices that tell him to fly to Australia. He's inspired by a story about a chicken to seek out this feathered prophet and then follows the fowl's lead to divorce divine inspiration even when christopher sunday points out that his sacred dance doesn't stop the rain but instead brings the rain kevin garvey insists that it is all about interpretation it's christopher's dance one that has been passed down generations but here is an american man telling him that maybe just maybe everyone else has been wrong This is why I don't like Kevin, but that doesn't stop me from having empathy for him. He's quite clearly in pain and needs help, but he causes so much damage to people around him. He does this in small ways, like hurting Matt's feelings, to literally falling off a roof and killing someone. Like, it doesn't get much bigger than that. He just doesn't clock what he is doing. He doesn't show remorse over Christopher dying, just that he can't learn the last song and be the man in the story who stops the flood. He sits near a man who's self-immolated. And I reckon it would probably be years before he even thought to bring it up in a story. He lies, he's entitled, he's an arsehole. Even in the end, when Grace tells her awful story, a story that is full of tragedy and a misreading of events around her, even then he fails to show Grace and instead makes it all about him. The funny thing about this whole episode, though, is that he flew to Australia and was asked if he wanted to speak to God, and then he views his whole trip to Perth as a diversion. But because we're watching this story take place, we know something that Kevin Senior experienced that he doesn't remember. He did talk to God, at least the God of this world, this potential Messiah. He spoke to his son, Kevin. While he was as high as a kite in a Perth hotel, he spoke to Kevin while he was in the hotel, in the in-between place where David Burton speaks to him, the place where he vanquished the enemy of his soul and had to sing himself back to life. If Kevin is Jesus, then his father spoke to him. But because he's so myopic, this is beyond Kevin Sr., Even when Tony the chicken pecks at the tape, Kevin doesn't think, oh, I'd better find my son. Instead, he listens to it and thinks, damn, I made the rain stop before. I'd better do it again. 
He chided Christopher Sunday by patronising him about his dance, saying it is all about interpretation, and then fails to see that he is misinterpreting all the signs around him. There's been so many signs too. When he makes the call to miracle, the stoby poles loom over him like giant crosses. He swears at Matt, the holy man, and the rains come down. He curses the sky and the rain comes once again and ruins his cassette. He talks to the snake explaining what he has to do and is in turn bitten before he can carry out his act. But in the end, he misses everything around him because he can't see beyond himself. This is a big factor in why his son is so messed up, why he ended up in an asylum and also why he is mad. Maybe Kevin never recovered from his wife's death and the grief was bubbling below all along. Then that fateful day made it all crash and burn around him. I do not like Kevin Garvey Sr. He's aggressive, a liar, he lacks empathy and isn't afraid to lash out. But he's also in pain and desperate for purpose. We can view ourselves in Kevin through these moments. He's a lesson about Ubris that if we're not careful, we too can slip down into madness. That it is important to find purpose, but not at the expense of everyone else around you. When you are presented with grace, you should respond in turn with grace. I don't like Kevin Garvey Sr., but he is a compelling character and I couldn't take my eyes from the screen. Even though there were times I just wanted him to stop, I had to see where he was going and what it would mean for those who still love him. get into the squid bits there's heaps going on here Uh, as i was saying before these episodes feel like double episodes there's just so much happening in every uh every scene it's like i don't know why i was blown away when the first episode of Watchmen came out i don't know if you remember way back in our very first podcast i spent four hours on the first five minutes of that series and i was like jesus what is happening here and then you start going through these episodes and you're like oh my lord there's so much but anyway uh the music that opens the episode is personal jesus it's performed by richard cheese a cover band comedy act that performs songs in a kind of lounge swing style. Uh, Some of their albums include (laughs) Lounge Against the Machine, Apatif for Destruction, and I'd Like a Virgin. Uh, To be honest, when I first heard it, I was hoping that it might be Frank Bennett, especially since it was set in Australia, but nope, it's Richard Cheese, and of course the song is pretty much the theme to this episode, and the whole season. Uh, There's a lot going on with animals. Good thing it isn't Neanderthal times for Kevin, or that snake bite might have turned out very differently. He also takes a message from a chicken. And does this episode imply that even animals disappeared on the day of the departure? I don't know if we've heard that before, so that was interesting. Uh, In the Bible, there are numerous theories that place Abraham's son Isaac's age anywhere between 2 and 37. The theory that Isaac was 37 comes from an ancient Jewish rabbinical tradition, which assumes that his mother Sarah died when she learned what Abraham intended to do, and this calculation is based on the fact that Sarah was supposedly 90 when she gave birth, without IVF either. What amazing times. Uh, Grace has a page from the Book of Isaiah in the photo album. Kevin's belief that the flood is coming as well as the indigenous group in Grace's backyard building a boat echoes the Genesis flood narrative, which is a recurring theme this season. There's even a photo of Grace's husband Sam reading a Noah's Ark picture book to two of the girls. National Geographic magazine makes a sneaky return. It is where Kevin hides the money from Matt at the page that has the map of Cairo. 
Christopher Sunday also appears to have several issues of the magazine on his coffee table. Not that specific issue, but just of National Geographic. Uh, Damon Lindelof has called the 1977 Peter Weir movie The Last Wave a big inspiration for and potentially an actual prequel of season three of The Leftovers. David Gulpilil plays characters called Chris in both works, which implies that his character Chris Lee in the Peter Weir movie over time matures into Christopher Sunday. That film is about increasingly aberrant weather in Australia and how a man named David Burton has visions of a flood that will end the world. While there is a character called David Burton in this series, that's more as a tribute. There is no implication that they are the same character. Bruce Chatwin's 1987 book, The Songlines, was also a major influence on this episode. Uh, The Songline in Aboriginal culture traces the path of the creator beings who gave shape to this formless land and also serve as geographical descriptors of key landmarks and holy sites, permitting the singer to navigate the land. According to Kevin's map, the tribe whose song he steals at the beginning of the episode are the Bandjigali, Banjigali, I think I pronounced that correctly. He also claims to be initiated in Yamanjaran. Yamanjaran. In 1981, John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan on the 30th of March. He was partially inspired by Travel Bickle's attempt to murder Senator Palantine in, not Palpatine, Palantine in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Interesting to note, young Kevin's fascination with the attempt on President Reagan's life and the movie. Didn't Kevin attempt to assassinate Senator Paddy Levin in the other plays? Hmm... Uh, The Stolen Generations is a period in Australian history from roughly 1905 to 1967 when various Australian federal and state agencies enacted broad legislation permitting the government to remove half-caste, which is mixed-race children, from their Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mothers in order to attempt to integrate them into white society. The purported rationales included the hypothesis that Aboriginal peoples were dying out due to the reduction in their population after contact with whites and the imperialist argument that the living circumstances in the Indigenous culture were tantamount to neglect from which the children needed to be saved. As Sharon said, in the episode, the Australian government, uh, Kevin Rudd actually, did issue a formal apology for this treatment in 2008. That's Prime Minister Kevin Rudd for anyone overseas who would like to look that up. Uh, Kevin was going to see an opera by Giuseppe Verdi at the Sydney Opera House, and even though he doesn't specify which one, music from Verdi's La Traviata plays on the soundtrack at this point. The scene of the man self-immolating is an homage to a scene in Nicholas Rogue's 1971 film Walkabout. They even use the same type of car. Lindelof wanted to use the same song that is used in the film, which is Rod Stewart's Gasoline Alley, but the rights were too expensive. When Kevin Sr. swears at Matt, the holy man, a storm suddenly breaks. If you notice the manuscript in the bin, the rain washes away Kevin's corrections. Kevin Sr. took God's tongue and didn't speak to God, but didn't he speak to Kevin Jr. in the hotel? We have already spoken about that. It's just funny, it wasn't a deviation. He actually did achieve what he set out to do. If Kevin Jr. is in fact Jesus... 
Is he Jesus? Well, we do know the beard does look good on him, but don't tell him that. Kevin Senior is bad with signs. He didn't realise he talked to his son and that meant something. He then talked to a chicken who pecked a cassette. Instead of going to his son, he believes he has to stop the rain. Uh, I know we've already covered that, but still fun to point out. Uh, Funnily enough, it is Kevin Jr. who finally gets his father to find him. By listening to the tape, Kevin Senior walks off the beaten path, nearly blows up, gets bitten by a snake and is found by Grace. So keep that in mind for the next few episodes. Before the scene where Kevin Senior performs the Indigenous dance, the crew on the set had to go through a cleansing ceremony with chanting and smoke. Kevin Senior buys a ticket to Sydney, puts on a suit, leaves the motel, and a guy asks him if he wants to speak to God. He was going to see Giuseppe Verdi opera, and it is Verdi's Nabucco Act 3 Va Pensiero that plays throughout the International Assassin episode. Kevin sings Itsy Bitsy Spider to Stop the Rain, and the National Geographic magazine has a story about spiders that can exist underwater. Scott Glenn has said this is possibly the best script he has ever been given. The pages that Kevin Senior reads about his son cover the events in season one with Paddy in Cairo, New York, to finding Holy Wayne in the restroom. Lindelof has said that 2% of the world disappeared and then for him that means that 2% of the world is supernatural. He says that is his interpretation, not necessarily anyone else's, including Tom Perotta. Most supernatural moments can be explained in the series, but Kevin Jr. knows stuff about his father. He couldn't have known except through the vision in International Assassin. Lindelof has stated that the Kevins had accessed the dream time, which the Aboriginal belief is that it isn't supernatural or psychological, but a tangible place. They had originally wanted to build Grace's Ranch at Hanging Rock since the movie Picnic at Hanging Rock was a major influence on season two, but the costs were too much. In the book, both of Kevin's parents are dead, and there was a little bit of Slim Dusty being played in the police station when Kevin is in custody. Shout out to Slim Dusty. Uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. I told you these episodes, oh, man, they're just they're chock-a-block, aren't they? Um, but I'm loving it and uh, thank you for taking the time to hang out with me I'll be back next week with two new episodes of Big Squid and hopefully no underlying headache Uh, hopefully that'll all be done by the time we get back on track I think I'm catching up with Ben Elwood this weekend too so hopefully I'll have him back on here soon I've missed having Ben on the podcast we have one more Sophia Coppola movie to go come on come on lockdown Maybe he should be my bubble buddy. Um, If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a top review at Apple Podcasts or if you'd like to recommend us to people, that would be appreciated too. Or if you think there's anyone out there who should get into The Leftovers or is about to give The Leftovers a go, let them know this podcast is here to help guide them through. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or at my site, justinhamilton.com.au. We'll finish off with another quote that is themed for this final season. This time we're hearing from author Leland Lewis who said... What is a false prophet? Those who lie by attributing personal biases to divine source. Until then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.